John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 789.jb2704, certificate number 1989, an album by a, a synth pop album by a pop group from Germany named Milli Vanilli was released in the United States to extraordinary acclaim. You could not get away from those songs. You couldn't go anywhere in 1989 without hearing both the music of Milli Vanilli and also about Milli Vanilli because they were an extremely attractive pop group that had very catchy tunes, and uh, they sort of took the world by storm. It was, um, it was a duo. A duo. They were German, but they were black. One of them was a Parisian, but whose parents were from Guadalupe, and the other was actually born in New York City as the son of an American serviceman. Right, and a, and a German mom. A German mom, and then he was adopted by a German family and raised in Germany. I don't think anyone in the future has the same problem as me, but I've always had a hard time remembering which is which. But so Rob Pilatus. Rob Pilatus was uh, born in New York, the son of an American serviceman. He has the striking kind of blue eyes I'm remembering. So uh, the two of them, one of them was the rapper and one of them was the singer. And Rob Pilatus was the singer. He had really, really like penetrating eyes. Right, like blue eyes, astonishing coloration. Yeah. And then uh, Fab Morvan was the Parisian. Uh, I, I remember him too with this amazing jaw, you know, he is very, you know, handsome male model straight out of a Calvin Klein ad guy. And I think that was part of what was so extraordinary about them as a pop group is that they also had models' bodies. They were, it was so, uh, in a way, particularly coming out of the, the 1970s, when musicians were, if you ever saw a photograph of them, you were astonished. You were sad and disappointed. Yeah, they were also hideous. <laughs> and then in the 80s, we had the rise of music videos, which sort of begat uh, the idea that a pop star would also be attractive. 
really. I mean, it, it, I mean, obviously there were Tom Joneses, but even sure. Tom I mean, people Jones. loved Elvis and the Beatles and Diana Ross, but you're right. The seventies, the pre-video seventies, were a time when you had to wear white and black makeup on your face so that people wouldn't be like, you look like a dentist. Right. I mean, it, and it isn't just that Blue Oyster Cult wasn't attractive. I mean, a lot of the disco stars, Donna Summer was beautiful, but if you if you looked back into the band, there were an awful lot of pretty shabby looking people. But here we had a pop group that they were as beautiful as any male model and were concocting very infectious hits. Uh, Fab was a pretty pretty melodious rapper with a pretty cool voice and Rob could sing like an angel. And so they, they swept the charts, uh, between 1989 and 1990, they had three number one hits, which was pretty unusual. Even then girl, you know, it's true. Was mm -hmm. the big debut that was their single. Debut single. And I remember blaming on the rain, but there's another more rappy. It's like don't forget my number or something, right? Yeah, baby, don't forget my number was the uh, was the hit in between there, the middle hit. Get my number, number, number. And it, it was kind of unusual to watch them as they were portrayed in video because they were a duo, but in a way kind of were only barely featured in one another's songs. In Girl, You Know It's True, it's really Fab's tune. And Rob just sort of sings the chorus. But then Blame It on the Rain, Rob sings the song in its entirety. It has no rap portion. So in the music video, you see Fab kind of joining in on the chorus, but he really doesn't do anything in that song but dance. I don't even remember this, that they were, that they got into the Lennon-McCartney-White album period very early in their career. Yeah, I think it was the, it, the idea was that one rapped and one sang, and uh, depending on the composition. I, I remember them in maybe live performances, they, they would both dance together, you know, and you'd see the braids flying. They were both very accomplished dancers. And, you know, you'd see that in their stage shows, I guess. Well, I think that's maybe one of the arguments about their performance was that they appeared to be, I mean, they certainly were active dancers, but if they you- They were kind of bouncing. Yeah. It was like a if, mosh pit kind of a thing. If you really look at the way they dance and at the way their dances are choreographed, I would not actually say they were very good dancers. They're you, not, you are dance-splaining <laughs> to Milli Vanilli? They're not in sync with one another and, and their dances are pretty awkward, uh, even at, at a time when awkward dancing was all the rage. What does the name mean? Is a, is well, a, is a Milli Vanilli like one thousandth of a Vanilli? <laughs> is so, it 10, 10 centi Vanillis? So the story of Milli Vanilli is very interesting and it traces its roots back to the early 1970s in Germany. Um, and a man named Frank Farian, uh, Frank was a sort of redheaded, pale German man 
who had made an attempt, like so many people in the late 60s, to be a pop star. He had a tune of his own that kind of didn't really trouble the top of the charts. Uh, but he understood music production, and he believed he believed in the music business. He wanted to be a part of it. And so as he explored his options as a producer and as a songwriter, he took the unusual route of creating music in the studio and then finding attractive people to actually front the band. Uh, so in his case, the band was Boney M, right? Boney M was his, was a band that he sort of, um, constructed out of whole cloth, like had the music already recorded. Just imagine this dude walking around Hamburg or whatever and seeing some attractive looking black person of either gender and being like, hey, 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 have I got a deal for you? I think he actually held auditions and there were some, there were a couple of women who were studio musicians who actually performed in the studio on his tracks. Um, like backing vocals? Was he singing? So there were... The, the music of Boney M was designed around female vocals, but with a male vocalist that had a very stylized, low studio voice that sounded like this. Was it electronically faked, I think? It was doubled and, and, and manipulated in the studio to sound kind of cooler than it was. But the voice always did the same thing. Imagine, imagine some pale, redheaded white guy like finding the levers that will make him sound like Barry White in his head. You know? Yeah, exactly. Nothing, nothing problematic about that at all. This is the voice that I use. <laughs> She's crazy like. And so he had two. He had two women that were that worked with him in the studio: Marsha uh, Barrett and Liz Mitchell. So Marsha and Liz are both from Jamaica, and they're both talented singers. And he uses them in the studio. And then he realizes that, I mean, I'm uh, the process of realization that Frank Farian goes through is perhaps lost to history. But he realizes that he, uh, in his sort of unattractive. German maleness is not really the third element of this band. And so he hires two additional people. He finds uh, a woman named Maisie Williams, who is a, a good dancer and a passable singer, but not someone whose voice he wants on the recordings. In fact, he tried her out and said explicitly, like, her voice does not fit with my sound. Maybe just look like you're singing. And then a man named Bobby Farrell, who uh, was from the island of Aruba, and, and Maisie was from Montserrat. Aruba so, and Jamaica? This is like the chorus of Kokomo. It really... <laughs> Frank, I want to take you. <laughs> uh, he discovers these people through audition. And Bobby Farrell, who's there to perform the... Hey, everybody. To be a better looking, <laughs> Here is more the voice. Uh, ethnically interesting version of Frank. And the problem is that this isn't even Frank's voice. It's a completely drummed up <laughs> voice. But he doesn't feel that Bobby Farrell has the chops... To sing like this in the studio. At this point, are you still a pop star? It's like the watch where you've replaced the battery, you've replaced the crystal, you replace the band. I mean, at what point is it not your watch anymore? And this is the salient question, right? Because Boney M, and Boney M, the name may fall on deaf ears somewhat. What a somewhat. great name for a band. And, it, and it's an example of a name that he just, uh, that Frank was watching TV 
one day and there was a, a detective show on television and the main character was named Boney because it was not an American television show. Uh, I think it was from New Zealand or something. Like if he'd just been watching Columbo or Mannix or something, they could have been a big U.S. hit. It would have guys. been Columbo M. Uh, but he heard the the word Boney and uh, he thought, yeah, yeah, Boney. And I think he just added the M because he, I mean, honestly, how do you improve on Boney? I guess you throw M at the end. Imagine him just going through the alphabet. Boney <laughs> K, Boney well, yeah, L. Yeah, just like Boney. And then Eureka! Boney M. I, and it may, in German, translate as something much more fun. Yeah, it makes, coolness must be very linguistically dependent. Yeah. You know, like Boney M, like to them, probably sounds, you know, amazing. Sure. It probably sounds like Slayer or Megadeth. Yeah, it's like, well, it's like prison colon ensignine Cusel. There's a sense of it probably meaning something in English, but nobody's exactly sure what. What was that thing you just well, said? Well, I'll explain that later. Oh. I'll explain that at greater length in a future episode of The Omnibus. People aren't just going to be interested <laughs> in Millie Vanilli now. They can't wait to hear the, the Spetzel and Strudel or whatever that was. The well, it's a the little bit of foreshadowing. My favorite word in Spanish is otorinolaringologo. Yeah. Which is just beautiful. Otorinolaringologo. It sounds like a, a lost tribe or something, but it just means ENT doctor. It's ear, nose, and throat guy. Oh. So yeah, coolness doesn't correlate to actual meaning. Sure, that is nice. You know, uh, the Spanish word for lawyer, abogado, is very close to the Portuguese word for thank you, abogado. abogado. And they both sound like the guacamole ingredient, avocado. <laughs> the one thing that you can put on any food to make white people think it's interesting. But what I'm saying <laughs> is if you don't know what an avocado is, you could have a band named Avocado and people would be like, yeah, right. that's a great sound. Right. But the second you know what avocado is or you know what bony M means, you're like, why are these four Caribbean singers called Boney M? Right. They're, if it was called avocado and you were Portuguese, you'd be like, oh, that sounds like they're saying thank you. But in, <laughs> You're in, welcome. In Spain, you'd be like, oh, wow, their band is named after a lawyer. Anyway, Boney M was enormous in Europe and in the United Kingdom throughout the 70s. They were contemporaries of ABBA, and they were similarly successful. And similarly dressed in the pictures I've seen. Look at that. You can't believe how far out those collars go. Well, and this is an example of sort of uh, the way Europe was following American disco, right? Disco was evolving in the 1970s to become like a worldwide force. But they don't have Detroit and Philadelphia, you know. They, they have, don't. They have Stockholm and Munich. So you get kind of this off-brand sense of store-brand disco from 1970s European music. It's a very unusual take on disco, but it does become its own animal, Europop, I guess, for yeah. lack of a better thing. Which still exists today. Right. And, it, and, and if you're European and or gay, like, it's a big thing for you. Europop still, still transcends cultures. And in the case of ABBA, the kind of, like, slightly frenetic beat and heavily produced music took on a, um, what, what to my ear is a very sort of pleasing wash, whereas Boney M had a much more frenetic dance tempo. The, the, the drum machines were quite a bit more syncopated, and it felt very synthetic, I guess, in comparison to American disco, which was like an evolution of soul music. Yes, it was still soulful, even though it had the, the disco beat. And crucially, the music of Boney M, although performed by four beautiful uh, Caribbean people, was composed and recorded by an unusually, um, well, an unusual German man. 
let's call it. And so it had a very like almost craft workian quality, <laughs> uh, but very, very hooky. And Boney M swept the European music awards. They were, had number one records in all European countries and were popular worldwide. They were one of the first groups to go to Russia to perform. They were popular in China and throughout Southeast Asia. And they had big, big hits. They sold 150 million records. Without ever breaking America. And really could not, I mean, listening to the top five Boney M tracks, even as a, as a musician myself and as someone who was very attuned to disco music in the 70s and 80s, I did not recognize a single track. I had a Polynesian friend in the, uh, in the 80s whose family was very into Boney M, but all I ever heard was their Christmas album. Right. That, and they had, I mean, they had some music that we would, I think, think of as pretty corny compared to like Donna Summer or, or any of the, uh, any of the soundtrack of, of the disco era. And of course that was a very international period too. The Bee Gees, uh, were Australians. Uh, and, or, we, and we welcomed them into our hearts. Well, sure. And they were disco phenomenon. And but, they were the sound of, you know, via Stan, you know, Saturday Night Fever, they became the sound of New Jersey, even though they were like three, <laughs> three falsetto Australian dudes. Right. Three British kids who were raised in Australia. Uh, the Christmas, the Boney M Christmas album was a, went platinum twice in Canada, even across the border in Canada. You just had to be a few miles to the north and you got Boney M. Well, right? and we see this a lot, right? There are plenty of UK and European pop groups that are huge over there that never really cause much fuss here. Right now we are speaking to an audience thousands of years in the future and they know that Robbie Williams is still trying to break into the US <laughs> in that time. He's still trying. Good on you, Robbie. Sure. I mean, the UK pop scene is littered with the gravestones of artists that have tried to break it in America and vice versa. Lots and lots of American bands do not make it in the United Kingdom. That's and interesting. In That's less visible to us. It is, but... It, but uh, Do you have some example of the band that could never quite make... Well, famously, Van Halen oh. is pretty much a, a footnote in the United Kingdom, whereas Bon Jovi is one of their hugest pop acts from that era. They chose poorly. And it's because Van Halen didn't really put in the time to build an audience there, but also there's something very distinctively American sounding about Van Halen that may not... Whereas you know. Bon Jovi, to me, is like Downton Abbey and uh, Tea with the Queen. You know, Bon Jovi, I think, is, uh, is much more palatable to an audience across the pond. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get Get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. 
But so, uh, so Frank had tremendous success with Boney M and with this formula, which was to take four beautiful black people and turn them into a recording or uh, turn them into, turn a them into ventriloquist dummies, right, essentially a performing team. And, and what, what was different, uh, what was different about Boney M is that they actually, the four singers did perform uh, the singing parts live. Uh, and partly it is that there wasn't really the technology then that would allow them to be lip syncing. So they would tape. tour and do their own approximations of, of the studio work of other artists. Yeah. And, and, and in a touring capacity, uh, they would bolster their sound with four backup singers sure. and with a very large band, including, you know, three keyboard players and whatnot. But the standard of a live show then was very different. We didn't have very accurate PA systems. You were performing in halls that weren't acoustically treated and so the audience didn't expect a perfect rendition of, of the album. Yeah, they were used to hearing flat singing and, and out of tune guitars. We didn't even have electric tuners. I mean, certainly we didn't have digital tuners. A lot of uh, bands just sort of tuned to themselves. And they, nobody, they tuned to the oboe. And they tuned to the oboe. And luckily nobody then cared because of drugs. Drugs and also people weren't recording concerts on their phones, right? There wasn't a way to say, sure. these guys sounded terrible today. So Boney M was extremely successful. They went to Russia, although they were not allowed to perform their song Rasputin. Which was deemed to be anti-Soviet in some way. Well, it was... Um, Is it cultural appropriation? <laughs> it, it, in fact, it portrayed uh, Rasputin as kind of like a sex machine. Oh. In fact, it calls Rasputin a sex machine. You have to mispronounce Rasputin to get the rhyme to work. Well, it turns out we say Rasputin, but uh, but in a European context, in German, the name is Rasputin. Do they say so, Vladimir Putin, like he's made of cheese curds uh, and uh, French fries? Well, I believe so. But Rasputin, they certainly pronounce that way, and nobody challenged them. Maybe they did it to just to rhyme it with sex machine. That's why they were such a big hit in Canada. They had all these songs about Putin. <laughs> The Soviets didn't like it, though, and but, uh, that, you know, that was a repressive time. But that was very early for a Western pop group to be playing Red Square or whatever. Yeah. This was before Billy Joel or Paul McCartney or whoever uh, Gorbachev in there. Yeah, I think Elton John also went to the Soviet Union at that time, but it was a very, very small group of people that were invited. And and Bobby Farrell, the, the one guy in Boney M, who only ever sang this part, recorded by Frank, he was... Also, a male model, an exotic dancer with a beautifully sculpted body who performed primarily as a dancer and as a frenetic dancer. And again, in a style that to our American eyes who are accustomed to musical dancers that are dancing with a certain amount of soul and rhythm, it seems like a very Germanic style of <laughs> Jumping around and awkwardly sort of proto breakdancing, but not it, it, um, it foreshadows the dancing style of Millie Vanilli to my eye in that it, it seems very angular and unrhythmic, arrhythmic. I, I assume everything about this experience 
foreshadows Milli Vanilli, right? This is how Frank learned how you can make a hit and still be him, right? Well, how you can make hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, but by, by the end of the disco era, there was sort of dissension within the ranks of the three women and man who comprised the live iteration of Boney M. And, and also, I mean, they were... They had, the, a, they had a Boney to pick with each did. other. In the 70s style, they were portrayed on album covers, sort of half-naked. In one instance, actually half-naked and chained to one another. Wow. There were a lot of things that would fly in European pop then that wouldn't fly now. Uh, but after a while, Bobby became unreliable, somewhat maybe on drugs and definitely not showing up to rehearsal. And there was, there was a feeling that they wanted to be more involved in the recordings. It's like when the monkeys started wanting to play their instruments. It's exactly that. And then disco, the popularity of disco crashed as we moved into the 1980s. And so after a string of hits and a greatest hits album that sold, uh, you know, into the millions, Boney M released a series of early 80s records that, did, that failed to chart. And it was a pretty precipitous fall. They had a number one record in Germany and then 1980 happened and their follow-up record didn't even crack the top 100. I was just looking at, this is very off the subject, I was looking at John Denver's discography, and he essentially had the same experience. Some multi-platinum record with three number one hits in, you know, 1979 or whatever, and then 1982, the follow-up, he's done. Completely Amer done. America has moved on. And, and that happens in music, I guess. It does, but it really did in 1980. You know, that was the era, just immediately post the punk rock explosion, where the tone of everything switched to new wave and synth and and you couldn't just chain these guys to each other and put a skinny tie on them you couldn't you couldn't put devo hats on the no the in, musicians of boney m in most cases i mean robert plant succeeded in putting on a skinny tie and and making a honey drippers record uh a lot of the 80s stars that were uh that were baby boomer connected like eric clapton and phil collins they managed to transition from their 70s cocaine excess to their 80s cocaine uh, <laughs> pop music. But a lot of music did not make that transition. It's like a geological period, you know, where the comet hits and a few species can make it in the new ecosystem, but there's just whole fossil beds full of John Denver singles and, and Boney M compilations. And, you know, and you could look back and say, why did it have to be Eric Clapton? Why couldn't it have been ABBA? Uh, because I think the music of ABBA holds up better uh, long term. I think the, the future mollusks will be listening to ABBA a lot more than they'll be listening to 80s Eric Clapton. I can guarantee that. So Boney M uh, splintered. And after the dissolution of Boney M, our good friend Frank Farian having learned his trade, decided he could repeat this success. And as long as there are black people in the world who for, are beautiful for me to use and can dance. And so he recorded an album of songs again with the premise that he was going to populate the live band with people unrelated to the recording. And he found some American musicians, uh, in particular, a man named Charles Shaw, who was a kind of, guy in his 20s who was a, a, a really eloquent rapper, and a keyboard player named Brad Howell, 
who was a great singer, but already in his 40s with a long career in the music business. Like a backup vocalist Yeah, type. a guy that had performed with a million different artists and had played keyboard and piano on their records. Uh, a great singer, but someone who was not going to be the front person of a popular synth band. And they recorded this album of tracks, uh, quite a few of which were penned by the great uh, Diane Warren, who was an American songwriter who continues to work to this day and who has written hundreds of, of the soppiest ballads, ballads for everybody from Dionne Warwick to Rat. She has won Grammys, an Emmy, uh, Golden Globes. She's been nominated for nine Oscars for best song. So uh, Diane Warren is you know, a very accomplished songwriter and wrote four of the tunes on the Millie Vanilli record. But Frank Farian wrote none of these songs. Is that what you're telling me? Not much of a songwriter? Frank Farian is a Svengali in the classic sense, a, uh, a producer and a big concept guy. He's not coming off super well. It's partially because his name sounds like Nefarious. Uh, his name does sound like Nefarious, and he... I guess that's a well-produced record. He must have... He's got some skill in the studio. I mean, you could make the case that he is doing... Uh, he is presaging an entire genre of music, which is the constructed boy band. Exactly. Uh, he's laying the groundwork for New Kids on the Block and for... Uh, the Backstreet Boys. A, a Vanilli should be a unit of how prepackaged a band is. Like uh, One Direction, that's 468 millivanillis <laughs> or or for 46.8 cent of vanillis. But Milli Vanilli became a cautionary tale because the music came out and initially the record was released in Europe in 1988 and became a big hit. And Frank uh, Farian obviously probably had a little bit, uh, his fingers were a little singed at having had such a huge band in Europe that never broke into America. And so Milli Vanilli initially was released in America. And the name Vil Milli Vanilli, again, just like Boney M, came from some bar he saw in Istanbul that was called Milli Vanilli. And he was like, cool name. Man, that, I'm writing that down. Yeah, that sounds almost as cool as Boney M. And Milli Vanilli is not a cool name, particularly not given the vanilla association. Right. That's tricky. You know, like it's a million vanillas. Or M Millie, it's like a, it's kind of a, a preppy woman's name or something. Yeah. Or it's a, George a Bush's dog. 19th or century farm wife. Yeah. Uh, none of it Millicent? Com commun communicates the sort of vibe I think he was going for. But again, in the US, it is not a club vibe. You're right. However, this record was so popular in Europe that at that point in time, the record business was not so balkanized, particularly not in the synth-pop genre. And Milli Vanilli attracted the attention of Arista Records, and they re-released that debut in America about a year later in 1989. And it was a huge success. But the music, the singing on the album, which on the European release had not been really credited to anybody, on the on the album art. Oh, is that right? Yeah, it's it was just, just uh, sort of like, Milli Vanilli! A whole group is singing at you. In the United States, it was explicitly credited to Rob Pilatus and Fab Morvan as the singers. And so when they started touring and their music became very popular uh, and they started doing interviews, it became kind of a question in people's minds because although they sounded very American- 
on their recordings, uh, they could barely speak English. Right. They had these very thickly accented, it was like interviewing Hans and Franz. Yeah. Super German sounding dudes. And I think people would say, wow, well, you know, Abba, you know, could barely speak English and yet they sound fairly unaccented on their... There, there is a history of people sounding different between their speaking voice and their singing voice, right? Well, there's a huge difference. I mean, there's a huge history, right? If you think about all of the British pop acts, I mean, Led Zeppelin does not say like, right. when the levee breaks, you know, it sounds like... Uh, they sound like Ble- oh Delta Blues God. guys. I have a good British accent. I don't understand why I can't convey it on this show. It's just your way of seeming humble to the future. They would be confused. It would be a Milli Vanilli situation if you were lip syncing too convincingly for a British person. Well, and it may be that in the future, what they think of as an English accent has evolved to be closer to my terrible version of it (laughs) than what we think of as the Queen's English now. Only American media will survive. Yuck. So is it plausible that these guys could have talked like this and that we are excited to tour America and yet on, on record they're just, girl, you know it's true. It is plausible that they could have sung, girl, you know it's true. And not spoke English at all. Mm-hmm. I, I saw a band in Belgium one time that played the Dukes of Hazard theme. They were a bar band, played the Dukes of Hazard theme in their set perfectly. And then after the show, I went up to talk to them and they didn't speak a word of English. They had just <laughs> phonetically mastered it. But the problem with rapping is that it's much more accent dependent and vernacular dependent. Like you, it's, it would be very hard to phonetically learn a good rap. With the, with the fluidity that you would have to perform it with. Right? That's right. With the fluidity and the sort of vocal, I mean, it, within rapping, you're able to communicate a lot more personality. Yeah, it's the and, sense that you understand every syllable of what you're saying is more important in rap than it is in yeah, pop right. lyrics. Your, your human attitude is significantly conveyed. And uh, Fab, struggling to speak English, suddenly could not be squared with the like super good, cool rap stylings of Charles Shaw. And in fact, in the case of Brad Howell, who sang the singing parts and played the keyboards on the records, he was a middle-aged guy and said, look, I know that I don't have a career in pop. I'm happy to be the person behind the scenes here. I get to hear my voice on the radio and I'm making money at this like this is appropriate for me. But Charles Shaw was a young guy and became resentful about the fact that his raps were making millions and these two male models were the public face of it. And so he went public saying that he was the performer on the Milli Vanilli record. Uh, Frank realized that this was bad publicity and so paid him $150,000 hush money and this is somewhat disputed, but pretty well on the record, that he gave him 150 grand in order to shut him up. And he recounted his accusation. But the suspicion was on them. Uh, well, it, let me tell you the suspicion I had. There were plenty of, you know, Millie Vanilli songs and parts of Millie Vanilli songs where you can clearly hear that, you know, it's not a duet. It's, it's multiple people singing, you right. know, like there's really... As you said, the album was not dreamed up with the idea that Robin Fab would be the face of it. So often you'd hear, you know, three or four people singing. There'd be women singing. There are a lot of women like, on that it, record. It does not sound like, uh, you know, two buddies uh, singing together. Right, making a record in their basement. Uh, but then there was an instance where they were performing at a at a kind of, you know, festival, a rural uh, state fair. I remember this. And the tape skipped. 
and they were out there dancing and singing on stage and got into a situation where they were going, girl, you know, it's girl, you know, it's girl, you know, it's girl, you know, it's, and they continued to lip sync to it and dance for a little bit before running off stage. I wanted to die. It stopped. Girl, you know, it's girl, you know, it's girl. 80,000 people. Girl, you know, it's girl, you know. You know, I couldn't repeat it 15 times. Girl, you know. So I stopped. I panicked. I went off stage. Julie Brown, who used to work for MTV, ran after me. Oh, man. That's like you would write that into a movie. It's you pretty. Know? It's pretty awful, and it actually happened uh, later. Uh, a very similar thing on Saturday Night Live. Ashley Simpson, right? When Ashley Simpson got a glitch in her tape, and also kind of awkwardly sort of danced a little. She did this little hoedown. Yeah, sort thing. of little Hitler in Paris kind <laughs> of like dance. You're really down on German dancing. That's what I found out on this entry of the omnibus. You know, if you've ever been to Germany, they have a lot of very interesting folk culture, but soul dancing is not really uh, what I would describe as their forte. They even had to invade Austria to get the waltz. Yeah, right. I, think, I think you're right. That super good at marching, <laughs> but not, and, and a lot of the dancing, a lot of the dancing that you see in Millie Vanilli and Boney M is in the marching family, I feel like, more than it is the dancing. We're speaking family. to a future where there's a huge German dance movement and scene. All the, the, the future cloud, they're all really into Schutzenfest and they're dancing around uh, wearing lederhosen. But um, at the time when the tape skipped at this event, the audience didn't notice <laughs> or care. Uh, they were a bunch of young people at a Millie Vanilli concert. And when they were like, girl, you know it's, girl, you know it's, they ran off stage fixed the tape, came back out and finished the show. And it wasn't a big deal. Well, you know, people lips, if you watched your favorite bands on TV, then, you know, wherever they appeared, a lot of the times it would be shows like American Bandstand or Soul Train where they were lip syncing to the album, to the record, and no one really cared. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't know if we were preconditioned to have outrage for bands that just lip synced along to the record until the Millie Vanilli thing unfolded the way it did. Well, and this was an era where we were, I think, culturally really wrestling with authenticity in art. What constituted real? You've got Warhol and artists like that that are, you know, sort of factory producing these silkscreened originals that, yeah. that they can do in a factory. Right. They have a bunch of students in there spray painting Elvis prints, and they're all Warhols. But also within music, you have blues artists who are being co-opted by white British rock people. And, you know, their music is being performed. I mean, the Rolling Stones, right, are, are a band that arguably just completely co-opted an American style of music that had a culturally limited commercial appeal because American audiences could not like in a widespread way, adopt a black form of music. But then the British pop stars made it palatable and sold us our own style of music back, but very much sort of washed, whitewashed. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. 
Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com start. And there was, I think, uh, the disco era produced a lot of suspicion about black music within the white musical community because it was very foreign. It had a lot of gay culture imbued within it. It was very much a, a new style of black music. And there was a real anti-disco backlash. All of this contributed to this critical storm in the late 80s about what was real. And at this time in 1990, Millie Vanilli, their records were so popular that they won multiple American music awards and were nominated for and won Best New Artist at the Grammy Awards. Best New Artist. Best New Artist. And then the questions about Millie Vanilli's authenticity. And I mean, this was at a time when the boys themselves, like Pilatus, actually went in an interview as far as to say he was the new Elvis <laughs> and that Millie Vanilli were bigger than Bob Dylan and the Beatles. This also seems like something you would do making a mockumentary about this band. It does now seem almost too, in a way, too good to be true. So we're all waiting for the comeuppance. Even people in the future know this is not going to end well, John. What happened to Millie Vanilli? How did the wheels come off the wagon? Well, at a certain point, our good friend Frank Farian decided the jig was up. And he just... Did he escape the country with a briefcase full of cash? No, he just confessed that he had manufactured the whole thing. And I think he felt like it wasn't that big of a deal. It makes him look smart. Yeah, he's exactly. The, he's the uh, Svengali pulling all the strings. Svengali pulling all the strings. I don't think he anticipated the reaction, which was absolute furor in America. People felt incredibly betrayed. This album that a great many people loved, that was multiple platinum selling album or albums, it was regarded as a true betrayal of the music buying people. It's hard to overstate. Like, uh, it's like Vietnam and Watergate put together <laughs> when people found out that those two, you know, hot looking faces they saw on the album cover were not the voices they heard on the radio. Like, That's right. They, they were, for some reason, very invested in that idea. And the reaction was swift and brutal. Um, there was a class action lawsuit filed against the record company. Really? And uh, the like, class... Like people wanting their, uh, their money back. People wanting their money back. And in fact, the class action suit was won by the plaintiffs. What? And uh, the... I'm very skeptical of the legal basis for this lawsuit. <laughs> Th that every time I buy a record, I'm entitled to a full refund if the singing was not quite as authentic as I got the idea from the liner notes. Well, I think it was regarded as uh, a, a situation where because they were listed, uh, because Rob and Fab were listed as the singers, this was a kind of false advertising. A fraud had been perpetrated on the American public. That's right. And you were uh, you were able to keep the album. You didn't have to return it. 
but you could apply for and be awarded the purchase price. So just remember that the next time some Generation X person complains about the snowflakes of today, these were people that wanted their $14 back because the singers were miscredited on an album. Uh, But they were stripped of their Grammy Award. Wow. Now, apparently they they were able to retain their American Music Awards because those were, that's a fan awarded system where where fans vote and so it was i guess perceived that you couldn't you couldn't you'd be overturning the will of the people yeah you couldn't overturn the fans appreciation of millie vanilli but the grammys which have a, a like a more secret industry voting program uh they took it away and i wonder if they physically took away the actual little gramophone statue i think some some jackbooted thugs arrived in a black helicopter and tore the Grammy Awards from Robin Fab's. They were clutching uh, them to their sculpted chests. Right, increasingly cold fingers. <laughs> uh, but they were vilified. And both Robin Fab had a pretty convincing story, which is that Frank Farian entrapped them and basically hired them and said, Hey, you know, I want you to be in my new pop group, uh, but your vocals aren't going to be required because the record's already made. Oh, and by the way, here's an advance, and uh, an advance which they claimed they spent on hairstyling and clothes. <laughs> uh, but then having spent the advance, Frank said, okay, now you have to lip sync to some music videos. And if you don't, you're going to owe me that money back. And so it was a gradual entrapment. They felt like they... They weren't in on the conspiracy. And then once the ball was rolling and they were out there and being promoted as the singers, they kind of had to keep up appearances. It reminds me of, and maybe it's because everything reminds me of this, of the quiz show scandal of the 50s, where they go to that nice Charles Van Doren young man, the waspy young man, and say, you know, first they just give him a few questions he had already done on his, uh, his audition. Right. And he gets them right. And at that point, they've got him and they can say, well, um, you know, what if we just tell you which things to look up, you know, and he starts doing that. And finally they're, they're like, well, it'll just save time if we give you the questions, but you can't say anything because, you know, you've, there's an audience who loves you now. And, uh, you know, right. so this is real bad for America. If you come clean and you just gradually get entrapped by the machinery of Arista records or possibly the quiz show 21. I'm glad that you, uh, you find a quiz show uh, entrance point for almost any, American story. We should do that in every episode. <laughs> so the Model T really reminds me of Herb Stemple. It'll be Ken's Quiz Show Corner. <laughs> it's a K- quiz with a KW. Uh, so Rob and Fab were sent packing, sent ingloriously back to Germany and became a punchline of the era. Yeah, I mean, think about all the late night monologues. Like it was, This was a dream come true for Johnny Carson and David Letterman. Yeah, and they were, I, they felt personally like their names were besmirched. They were universally regarded as the guys that couldn't sing, that had perpetrated a, a fraud on everyone. In fact, they actually did a television commercial uh, in the immediate aftermath for Double Mint Gum, where they mocked themselves as the guys who who couldn't sing. Are uh, you like me? Do you get incredibly sad when you see something like that, like uh, Tanya Harding Foxy Boxing or whatever, and you realize these guys know they only have a few more months yeah. to make whatever coin they can out of this. Well, and, and I done. think they were hoping to rehabilitate themselves by having a sense of humor about it, but it was not, I mean, it wasn't a success in terms of uh, turning the public's opinion around. And they actually then 
tried to follow up with an album of their own songs, Rob and Fab. So uh, last night, just for comparison purposes, I looked at a Rob and Fab video where they're doing their own singing. Mm-hmm. And I also looked at the real Milli Vanilli, which is what the studio musicians right. follow so, up. So Frank Farian tried to put the actual players together and say like, here it is, the band that you love. And it's this uh, 26-year-old rapper and this 45-year-old keyboard player and some background singers and no, nobody wanted it. But you know, a few years later, everyone, nobody minded CNC Music Factory. Which was kind of a vague multiracial conglomerate that was probably not camera ready. And we were into that. Like, Millie Vanilli just maybe made the mistake of being too photogenic. Yeah, they were there at the wrong time because, because they really did lay the groundwork for an entire genre of the music business, by which I mean the manufactured boy band. And it was, I think the evolution of the manufactured boy band template was that the boys themselves did increasingly do the singing. I think the back or the uh, new kids on the block maybe did not sing all the parts on their album, but certainly the Backstreet Boys and uh, in sync and and subsequent bands, possibly as a result of Millie Millie backlash. Absolutely, as a result, they were chosen for their singing ability. So there were auditions, and young singers arrived and and sang and danced and were chosen for their talent. Now they didn't write their their music at all, but as you said, I mean the Monkees didn't write theirs either. Neither did Elvis. You know, you don't. So we don't have a problem with artists not writing their own songs, although recently. As recently as a couple of years ago, Drake got into a beef with Meek Mill, Meek Mill because Meek was accusing Drake of not writing his own rhymes. We don't have to recap this. Everyone in the future will remember the sure. Drake-Meek Mill beef. Sure. And in fact, just recently, Portugal the Man and their big hit Feel It Still came clean about the fact that they had actually sort of bitten the melody from Please Mr. Postman. But, oh, that's interesting. But they had gone to the copyright holders of Please Mr. Postman in advance, acknowledged the similarity of the melody, and got approval. All of this is, it's all of a family of trying to both make the best record you can and also protect yourself against criticism of both faking it and also stealing. Well, when I watched the Robin Fab video side by side with the real Millie Vanilli, the, real, the songs in the real Millie Vanilli are just as catchy as anything on the first record, I thought. Right. Whereas Rob and Fab doing their own singing and rapping was about as underwhelming as you would think. It, it was indeed thickly accented. Neither of them really had much of a voice. Girl, you know it's true. Um, they looked great. The, the the black and white women spinning around them in, you know, kind of beautiful Justify My Love cinematography all looked great. Still bad German dancing. <laughs> of course, that's, that's a very important part of the genre. Uh, the story ends in tragedy, as so many stories do. 
after the events of 1990, uh, Rob and Fab had very different reactions to it. Fab sort of solidified his desire to be a, a performer and got sober and pursued a sort of a diligent course of, of resurrecting himself. But Rob fell on hard times and suffered from drug problems and crime even. Uh, he committed some assaults and robberies oh, wow. uh, and ended up in jail in California. Did he blame it on the rain in court? Uh, oof, oof. I can only imagine. But in 1998, 10 years, about, uh, 10 years after the beginning of their career, they were the first ever or featured on the first ever episode of VH1's Behind the Music. Their last great gift to us was this new genre of uh, of music expose. That's right. The you know the the quintessential sort of rise and fall story of Millie Vanilli, and ten years was enough time that we were all now uh, newly fascinated. But very shortly after the airing of the Behind the Music, um, Rob died of an accidental drug overdose. And uh, there is some speculation that it wasn't accidental. As there often is. Um, that he may have just been, he might have just had enough. It was at the end of his rope. Fab continues to record and has, I mean, maybe not resurrected anything close to his career, but he does have a, a solo album and, uh, and was active making music as recently as 2011. Good job, Fab. Good job, Fab. Girl, you know it's true. But their legacy lives on, right? We are now in an era where a thing like this would not even really raise an eyebrow. We have musicians. I mean, we assume that pop musicians are performing with backing tracks. They're auto-tuned within an inch of their lives, even the greatest vocalists. Within their recordings now, auto-tune, I mean, auto-tune in pop music is an effect rather than it's not something that, that anyone tries to hide. It's actually something that's slathered on vocal tracks, mm -hmm. but the digital technology allows for micro editing within a, a vocal comp so that you could put together a vocal track out of little slivers of syllabic information, all, all kind of glossed over to make a, a an impeccable impeccably in tune and perfect vocal track, but completely digitally manipulated. And no one, no one bats an eye at it. This in Millie Vanilli's time would have been a scandal, but, but now it's considered the, it's considered the business of pop. It's not my music aesthetic. Like to me, it sounds a little too impeccable now, you know, you actually want to hear some raw edges. Yeah, you I mean, don't anymore. and I think that is an aesthetic that dates back to the idea that there's an authentic performance, an authentic blues, an authentic, uh, the, the personality of the performer matters as opposed to the flawless pop candy. A polished masterpiece, a, a final work. Yeah. And it's, I guess, too bad that Robin Fab had to die on the altar of authenticity. Literally, in one case. And we saw it in rock and roll, sort of it, it, rock and roll went through its own process in the 90s of a kind of inquisition of pointing fingers at who was real and who wasn't, who was an, an authentic rocker and who was a studio production or somebody that was 
stealing the sound or the the quality of a of someone more real like stone temple pilots or bush somebody that that wasn't accrued the same street cred as mud honey or nirvana is this something is this a calculus that happens in your head when you record music like do i want this to sound a little more polished do i not like the way you can hear the the crack there or the well you know in in my own recordings it often is a question of time but for most of the vocal tracks of long winter's records i sang it completely all the way through maybe edited one mistake out of the middle of a chorus or something but we would attempt to get an entire take and that's vocally challenging your song sounds much more live if you sing it front to back than if you sit and and micro edit it but in in my own indie rock culture absolutely i mean the sunny day real estate refused to do magazine interviews because they felt like it was inauthentic. (laughs) So there was a... They should have people lip sync their interviews, I think. You need to hire (laughs) hire a couple guys. (laughs) And and within rock and roll, it all tipped the day the Shins put their music in a McDonald's commercial, which would have happened around the year 2000. Up until that point, it would have been shameful to have your music used in a television commercial then the shins who were everyone's darling critical darlings did it sort of unapologetically and almost immediately the scales tipped and every indie rocker was trying to get their music used in tv commercials that's the dream that's right we the long winners had a fiat ad and we actually were contracted to do a miller beer ad and they paid <laughs> us the money and then they decided to go a different direction they decided to go with something that was a little more blues And that concludes Milli Vanilli, entry 789.JB2704, certificate number 35145, in the omnibus. Now, social media does not still exist in your era, if I'm sure of anything. Let's hope. I'm sure you have sunny day real estate, but you do not have social media. But in our day, the omnibus project was omnipresent. We could be found under that name on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We were omnivorous. John was at John Roderick on Twitter and Instagram. I was at Ken Jennings on Twitter. We even had an email address. That was a popular form of written communication at the time. We were so naive. Omnibus Project at HowStuffWorks.com. Future links from our vantage point here in your distant past. We can only imagine when the great cataclysm comes. Could be tomorrow. If it is... I'm going to leave a bunch of dirty laundry and some dishes in the sink. I wish I hadn't washed my car yesterday. Yeah, see, that's the thing. It's always going to rain toxic plasma. <laughs> the second after. The second you wash your car. Uh, but uh, we hope and pray that that catastrophe may never come. We hope that we are the first generation to become immortal and not the last generation to die. Uh, but if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if Providence, whomever that may be, allows, we will be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.